Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Welcome to episode 46 on the Ninth Commandment. So, the Ninth and Tenth Commandments kind of go together. The Ninth is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And the Tenth is, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So, both of these commandments are ultimately about what goes on in our hearts. The Tenth Commandment is mainly focused on envy, so desiring things that don't belong to us. And the Ninth, which we're looking at today, is on lust, on desiring other people in a way that is incompatible with their and our proper end. Okay, now you might be listening to this and thinking, Caitlin, we already did a full three episodes on sex and chastity and marriage. Why are we back here again? Okay, great question. Basically, if we look at all of the other commandments so far, we can see this focus on our external actions. So things like lying and stealing and cheating. However, these last two commandments remind us of the importance of our interior struggle. They remind us that the things that we do in our hearts and in our minds, they really matter. So I remember a few years ago, I was at my grandma's place. I was like flicking through the channels on the TV and an episode of that show, How I Met Your Mother was on. And in this episode, there was this husband and wife and they were going through a bit of conflict because the husband kept being really weird with his wife. He was like super awkward and he wouldn't look her in the eye. And she was like, what is going on? And eventually he tells her, he says, look, I've actually fallen into the habit of fantasizing about other women and I haven't cheated on you. I would never cheat on you, but I feel really guilty about it. In fact, I feel so guilty that every time I fantasize, I have to kill you off in my fantasy. I always imagine that you've like just died and that's why I'm sleeping with this other woman. And the wife's response is so irritating. She's like, oh, babe, the only thing that I'm annoyed about in this fantasy is that you're killing me off. You don't have to kill me off. Seriously, who cares? You can fantasize about as many other women as you like. It's not like you're actually doing anything about it. And the husband is like, man, you're the best wife ever. And then they high five. And I'm like, that scene was not written by a woman. (laughs) And it's kind of a silly idea, right? That you're only betraying your spouse if you actually act on your fantasies. Our Lord says it himself in Matthew chapter five. He says, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, why is that? Well, because as human beings, all of our actions originate in the heart and in the mind. The heart is like the center of a whirlpool. It's like that central point that everything else kind of spins out from. In fact, We are actually incapable of committing a sin that doesn't begin in the heart and the mind, because if we didn't internally assent to that sin, then we're not culpable for it. So in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication. So those external sinful actions that we commit 
are actually an end point. They're kind of like an extension or, or reflection of sins that we're already committing in our hearts. So this ninth commandment invites us to purify our hearts. It invites us to rid ourselves of everything inside us that keeps us from God. Because until we do that, we will never be truly his, no matter how good we appear to be on the outside. In the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. That is such a true statement. Like, I mean, I think of myself, I know that in those moments when I'm like full of envy or I'm holding a grudge or I've gotten a little bit too obsessed with Remus Lupin from Harry Potter and I'm constantly thinking about how he is actually my ideal man. I know that in those moments, I find it harder to concentrate in mass or to pray. You know, I I can't see God clearly because my heart is cluttered up with all of these other things. It's kind of like when you're driving through the country and bugs keep hitting your windscreen. Eventually, you have to stop and clean the windscreen. Otherwise, you won't be able to see where you're going and you're going to have an accident. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't love people and that we can't love the things of the world. Of course, we can and we should. However, the things that we love and the way in which we love them should direct our hearts towards God. They should be compatible with our Christian faith. Envy and comparison and unhealthy obsessions with fictional characters all distract us and they draw us away from what is real and true and important. They also draw us away from love and connection with other human beings. Like if I'm internally thinking of others with, you know, a lack of charity or I'm lusting after them in my mind, then I can't truly see them as children of God with infinite dignity and worth. They become objects for my own satisfaction. Okay, so we need to purify our hearts. But how do we do that? Well, The Catechism provides us with a useful guide in point 2520. It says that if we want to have purity of heart, we need to live four things. Chastity, purity of intention, purity of vision, and prayer. So let's unpack each of those. Now, we kind of already covered chastity in episode 39, so you might want to go back to that if you want to think about it more. But the emphasis here is on living chastity internally as well as externally. So that means guarding my thoughts, right? Guarding my imagination. And importantly, it also means not dialoguing with those temptations against chastity. Because that's where sin always begins, right? With a temptation, a thought, an image, an idea. And sometimes We can fall into that trap of trying to kind of think our way out of it. So we might sit there looking at that temptation and going, oh, no, I shouldn't be having that thought. Stop having that thought. Why am I having that thought? It's like when someone says, don't think of an elephant. And then immediately all you can do is think of an elephant. The more we try to think our way out of temptation, the more we paradoxically think ourselves into it. So Pope Francis recently talked about this. He said, We must never dialogue with the devil. Jesus does two things with the devil. He either sends him away or he responds with the word of God. 
So we can follow our Lord's example in that. When something pops into our heads, rather than wrestling with it on our own, we can just hand it straight over to God, right? Say a Hail Mary, tell Jesus we love him, and then just get on with our day. Okay, so that's chastity. And then purity of intention. What does that mean? Basically, it means doing things for the right reasons. The modern Catholic dictionary defines purity of intention as the perfection of one's motive. An act is more or less pure depending on the degree of selfless love of God with which it is performed. And that's the ultimate goal, right? That we do the right thing because we love God and we love others, not because we're being self-serving or proud. And I think this is something that we can all grow in, right? Like so often when we do the right thing, there's a tiny element of selfishness wrapped up in our good intentions. So maybe I want to be recognized by others, or maybe I'm helping someone because I want something from them. And that's okay. Like we're human and we're not perfect, but we can still strive for perfection, right? So when we catch ourselves doing something good, partly for the wrong reasons, Well, we can just bring that to God and offer it to him and ask him to purify our intention. And then thirdly, we have purity of vision. So this refers to the things that we look at and the things that we consume. It's about making sure that what I fill my heart with is actually good for me. So especially these days, we have to be really careful about the things that we watch and consume. (laughs) I recently made the ill-advised decision to watch the film Dirty Dancing on the recommendation of a friend. Oh my gosh. Looking back, I'm like, Caitlin, it is literally called Dirty Dancing. Like, what did you expect, you dingus? But honestly, I swear, I spent like 75% of that film with my hand over the screen being like, oh my lordy may, <laughs> like mashing the skip button. I think sometimes we can just kind of unthinkingly consume or look at or listen to things just because they're there or because someone told us that we should or everyone is into it. And this is where we have to make use of the brain that God gave us because the stuff that we consume, it affects us. It enters our hearts. And, you know, sometimes an image or an idea can get kind of wedged in there. It's like a splinter and it keeps popping up in our minds or even subliminally, it might start to affect the way that we see others and see the world. So we have to be careful. And that doesn't mean being weird, going around with blinkers on or living in a cave because we're afraid of the world. But it might mean reading a review of a film before going to see it or having a look at what's actually in that movie or that show. It might mean unfollowing certain people from social media or not kind of staring at every billboard that we walk past. And it's the same when it comes to guarding the things that we think about, our imaginations and our emotions. I think this is an area where it's really easy to just pass things off as harmless, especially if it's not actually a kind of immoral fantasy or anything. I'm just like daydreaming about how cool it would be if I were the president. (laughs) What's the harm in that? (laughs) Okay, well, there's this great quote from San Jose Maria Escriva, which I think sums it up perfectly. He says, Get rid of those useless thoughts, which at best are but a waste of time. And of course, the imagination can be a wonderful thing, especially when we use it for creative pursuits or to set like realistic goals for our future. But it's also really easy to waste our time with it. And as well as that, 
The imagination is an unwieldy beast. (laughs) Sometimes something that starts out innocent can open the door to pride or lust or envy, etc. So again, we don't need to get scrupulous and weird about it, but we just have to be a bit careful. And then finally, we have prayer. If we want to be pure of heart, we need to lean on God. We can't do it by ourselves. There's a quote from St. Augustine's Confessions where he says, I thought that continence arose from one's own powers. I was foolish enough not to know that no one can be continent unless you grant it. So we have to avoid falling into something called voluntarism, which is the idea that it's all up to me and that I can do it all on my own. Apparently, when I was a baby, my mum tried to help me with something. And my older sister, who was like two years old, was like, no, mum, stop. She can do it by herself. (laughs) And sometimes that can be us, right? Being like, no, God, I can do it by myself, which is silly. We can't. We need God's help. And one person that we can really lean on, especially when it comes to living chastity, is Our Lady. Mary is a mother. She's our mother. And we can go straight to her whenever we're struggling in this area. Now, the Catechism in point 2521 goes on to say that purity requires modesty. Okay, what is modesty? The Catechism defines it as refusing to unveil what should remain hidden. So this relates to the clothes that we wear, as well as having discretion in the way that we speak, the way that we look at others and the way that we treat other people. Now, when it comes to modesty, especially around clothing, I think like this can be a really tricky topic because there are a few misconceptions that might arise. One is the idea that modesty is all about shame. It's about hiding our bodies because we think they're dirty or something. The second is that modesty is just for girls and that guys don't have any responsibilities in this area. And neither of those things is true. So let's go through both of those, beginning with the idea that modesty is about shame. Now, I think we're probably all aware that we live in a culture that tells us that it's empowering for women to sort of wield our sexuality as a kind of tool for power almost and own it by displaying it to the world. It's like, you know, we've been victims of the objectifying male gaze for too long and now we're taking control of our sexuality and we can use it to draw attention to our own bodies if we want to, because our bodies are beautiful. So why not show them off to the world? If you've got it, flaunt it. Makes me think of when I was in high school and you would see a kid being bullied or teased by other people. And then they would kind of flip the switch and the bullied kid would actually start making like jokey derogatory comments about themselves. It was almost a way of being like, no, no, you don't have power over me. I am choosing to be teased. I am the one making the jokes. The problem with that is that whether it's you making the jokes or someone else, you are still the butt of the joke. And it's the same with sexual objectification. The problem isn't so much whether I'm being objectified by someone else or whether I am owning that objectification. The problem is treating my body as an object because I am more than that. I am a complex, layered, beautiful human being. I am more than just a thing to be gawked at. 
Now, no one is saying that, you know, you can't look beautiful and attractive. Of course you can. You should. That's good. That's great. The problem is when we start to dress or behave in a way that draws attention to sex rather than to beauty and actually distracts from my deep beauty and my dignity as a human being. I I feel so grateful to my mum for teaching me this. My mum is like a card carrying feminist and she explained modesty to us so well. She was like, guys, modesty is actually the truly genuinely empowering way of owning your beauty. My body, your body, they are awesome. You are beautiful and wonderfully made. And it's precisely for that reason that your body is not for everyone to look at. My body is not for that leery old guy at the pool. Okay, it's not for that hormonal teenage boy at school. It's not for the random guy that I walk past on the street. It is not an object for someone else's gaze. It is for me and God and the person that I choose to give it to one day. And you know what? I don't need to show it to anyone else to be affirmed in that. I'm confident in my beauty and dignity and worth. So it's not about shame. I'm not hiding my body away because it's dirty. I'm, it's exactly the opposite, in fact. I'm covering those intimate parts of myself precisely because they are beautiful and good and I refuse to objectify them. The same thing goes for anything that's precious or intimate or sacred. Like, for instance, if I inherited a pair of diamond earrings, I wouldn't wear them to the grocery store because I know that they are priceless. And in fact, I probably would kind of veil or hide them in a sense. Like I might keep them in a safe or in a jewelry box, not because I'm ashamed of them, but because they are too precious to just fling around everywhere. And if someone were wearing diamond earrings to the grocery store every day, that might suggest that maybe they don't realize the value of what they have. Maybe they don't realize that they're diamonds. If we're in the habit of dressing or behaving in a way that reveals our physical intimacy to anyone and everyone, maybe we need to rediscover the incredible beauty and value of our bodies and also of our human dignity. Okay, now I can hear some of you listening to this and being like, Caitlin, hang on a second, hold the phone, back the truck up. This isn't fair. I don't dress the way that I dress because I don't know my own worth or because I'm trying to objectify myself. I dress the way that I dress because it's comfortable and because I like those clothes. It has nothing to do with being an object for the male gaze. Or maybe you don't feel like this, or you might have, you know, friends or a cousin or, you know, a sibling who who says these things to you. And that's an excellent point. Okay. Thank you for making it. We can't assume that dressing immodestly is inherently some kind of power play or, you know, an insecurity thing. Maybe you do just want to be comfortable. I think that's often the case. And as someone who lives in a city where it's often like 35 degrees Celsius and like 100% humidity, I totally get the thing of being like, you know what? I just want to wear as little as possible because it is really hot outside and I don't care who's looking at me. And that is understandable. However, Point 2521 of the Catechism points out that modesty is in conformity with the dignity of persons and their solidarity. Okay, solidarity. So in other words, 
Modesty isn't just about me because I don't live in a vacuum. <laughs> okay, It's also about the people around me. And I think we kind of get this intuitively in other contexts that I don't always just wear whatever is comfortable for me. So, you know, I wouldn't rock up to a wedding in my pajamas, for instance. And the reason for that is at least partly because I care about the couple and I don't want to insult them. When I love the people around me, I want to seek their good as well as my own. So, for instance, if I were to you know, hang out with one of my guy friends and he's a good guy who loves his girlfriend and he wants to be faithful to her, he does not want to look at me like that because I love him, not because I'm ashamed or afraid or guilty or because I'm responsible for his actions. No, because I love him out of charity, I'm going to avoid wearing something super revealing. And then I can extend that respect and that charity to all of the men around me. And okay, we have to clarify here. Sometimes it can sound like with this whole modesty thing, we're saying that men are just these like out of control animals and that we girls have to hide our bodies because you all have no self-control and it's up to us to protect our own dignity. Okay, that is not the case. So if we go back to the catechism, it says modesty guides how one looks at others and behaves towards them. So in other words, modesty goes both ways. Living modesty is as much about guarding my own eyesight and treating everyone with respect and dignity, no matter what they're wearing, as it is about dressing with dignity. If I freely choose to gawk at someone else's body, that is on me. So as an analogy, if I were to pig out on chocolate cake, right, and fall into the sin of gluttony, I couldn't just say, oh, well, it's the cake's fault that I committed that sin. No, every person is responsible for their own free choices. Yes, we should all dress in a way that honors our dignity, but we all also have a responsibility to show respect for the dignity of others in the way that we look at and think about them and treat them. If someone is dressed immodestly, look away. <laughs> you are not a monkey. You have free will. You can do that. Now, this leads us to that second misconception, which is that modesty is just something for girls. Obviously, women don't often have the same sex drive as men. However, we are not sexless creatures. And speaking on behalf of all the women of the world, it does not make things easier for us when guys are posting like shirtless photos on Instagram with their abs hanging out. Don't do that. <laughs> and in the same way, we girls have to make an effort not to objectify guys. I find myself doing it sometimes, like walking down the street and being like, damn, that guy's got some biceps. And then I have to stop myself and be like, hang on, Caitlin, I need to apply the same standards to myself that I apply to the men in my life, okay? No one should be objectifying anyone regardless of their sex. Now, this is the point where we might be like, okay, modesty, important. So how do I do it? How do I dress modestly? For instance, what is the precise length that my skirt should be at? Or how much sleeve should I have? Okay, unfortunately, that is not quite how it works. The catechism in point 2524 says that the forms taken by modesty vary from one culture to another. 
So there is no kind of mathematical equation for objective modesty. I mean, you even look at different body types and there are certain things that are going to be revealing on one person that just aren't on someone else. Also, I mean, side note, but I think sometimes we can rely a little bit too much on objective parameters and rules for modesty because it's just easier and it takes the responsibility off our own shoulders. We just have to like follow these rules and then we're being modest. In reality, though, our hearts have to be in it. It's our own responsibility to actively look at what I'm wearing and think, okay, do these clothes that I'm wearing in this specific context Do they draw attention more to the intimate parts of my body and encourage others to objectify it? Or am I inviting others to see my deeper beauty and dignity in the way that I dress? And to be perfectly honest, I think at the end of the day, not always, but often we kind of know when we're wearing something that's a bit borderline or a bit immodest. Like I feel it myself if I'm wearing something that I'm like, oh, I feel like it's a little bit too short or a bit too tight. And then I leave the house and I can feel it. I like, I, I feel a bit more self-conscious. I'm like, oh, like this doesn't feel quite right. Okay. We need to listen to that voice rather than kind of being like, okay, what are the exact rules for how I have to dress? Now, another point that the catechism makes is that modesty is not just about the way that we dress. It is also about the way that we behave. In point 2523, it says there is a modesty of the feelings as of the body. And in point 2533, it says modesty protects the intimate center of the person. And I like this idea of the intimate center. We human beings are both body and soul. We are emotional and psychological beings as well as physical ones. So that means that we have to protect our emotional center as well. And I mean, that doesn't mean never sharing our feelings with anyone, but it does mean having discretion when it comes to revealing the intimacy of our hearts, especially with members of the opposite sex. I think sometimes both women and men can use flirting as a kind of shortcut to intimacy, to feeling desired or close to someone, even when we know that we don't want to date that person. And again, that can actually be a way of objectifying someone because we're using them to feel better about myself without necessarily thinking about what's good for them or showing respect for the fact that they are actually a human being who deserves to be truly loved and whose emotional center isn't actually mine to play with. Okay, so that's modesty. And then finally, before we wrap up, the Catechism in point 2525 says that Christian purity requires a purification of the social climate. So in other words, everything that we need to do internally and individually to purify ourselves also needs to be done externally on a kind of societal level. And in fact, the two go hand in hand. So if I am living purity in the way that I talk and dress and think and behave, I will bring that into my workplace and into my social life and into my like online interactions with other people. 
And we really can't underestimate the good that we can do by witnessing to the truth about human dignity. I think sometimes we can feel a little bit embarrassed about things like modesty and chastity and purity. And we, I mean, we're okay to live it, but we kind of try to keep it to ourselves because we're like, well, if people found out that I'm like not having sex with my boyfriend or that I don't look at porn or I I try to dress modestly, they're going to think that I'm some kind of like medieval freakish prude. (laughs) But actually, that's not the case. It's only when we act apologetic that people think that we have something to apologize for. It's also one of the upsides of the fact that our world is so focused on tolerance. We get to be like, okay, well, tolerate this. (laughs) And more often than not, in my own experience, if we are confident, people are actually very willing to roll with that. And in fact, they become curious and interested and engaged and they think that it's really cool that this is the way that we live and it's totally fine. And then we can play a part in raising the tone of the world around us and showing our friends that there actually is an alternative. I remember when we were kids, my older sister went on a school camp and one night all of the girls were like sitting around and chatting And one of the girls started telling a really off joke. And another kid who was like one of the cool kids, she literally just got up and left the room. (laughs) It was really cool. And she wasn't weird about it. She wasn't apologetic. She just owned it. She was like, nah, this is not really my vibe. And then went and like made a cup of tea. (laughs) It was really cool. And it was helpful for the other people in the room because they might not have had the courage to actually say anything themselves, or they might not have even thought twice about that joke. And her witness acted as a kind of trigger for all of them to think a little bit more deeply. Okay, so that is all we have time for today on the ninth commandment. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the 10th commandment, the last one. We're nearly there. (laughs) Okay, well, have a fantastic fortnight and I will talk to you soon. Bye.